All right, good morning, church. Moms and dads, isn't it good to see your kids pray? Like, not just pray, but like earnest, sincere, heartfelt prayers. And over the last few days, watching my two oldest boys pray that their dad wouldn't come up here and embarrass them this morning, <laughs> it, it meant so much to me to see the heartfelt prayer. Tyler, Trevor, keep praying. <laughs> Uh, I entitled this message this morning, Remember This. It's taken out of 1 John, uh, continuing on in our John series, 1 John series. 1 John chapter 2, verses uh, 12 through 14. This passage is written in a poetic fashion with a rhythm. And John wrote this text to three groups. In this order, children, fathers, and young men. Now, John likes the term little children. It's a favorite expression of his used throughout his writing. John is a church father, an apostle, one who lived and walked with Jesus, spent a lot of, a lot of his life with him, is well advanced at age in this point, like late 90s. He's, he's an old guy, especially for this time period. And he can rightly call everyone in the church little children. I think when you reach your 90s, everyone, you, you get to do that. Um, at the time this was written, being called little children by the Apostle John would not have been viewed as a demean, demeaning to those who he was talking to. You know, nowadays, you know, you're in your 20s and 30s, and the old guy goes, hey, come here, kid. You're like, I'm not a kid. Um, but that, in this society at this time, um, this time in history, this culture, they would have placed a very high value on John's words, his wisdom, and his authority in regard to the church. Now, leading up to today's passage, um, John has just finished reminding these believers, this is what we have heard, this is what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And he further has highlighted, leading up to this, Walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. And the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now John starts off his text today with this, in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So as John writes to his little children, he wants them to remember this essential. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Dear Christians, brothers and sisters, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, forgiveness can always be found in Jesus. Always. And this assurance of forgiveness of sins is something we should dwell on. This isn't something... We ever, okay, we know this, it's time to move on. No, this is something we hold on to. Our faith is built on this. This forgiveness removes the guilt of sin, the weight of it. And, and as believers, do we still sin? Yes, we go back to that forgiveness, and it removes that weight. It allows us to continue to move forward. Charles Spurgeon said, I need not walk the earth fearful of every shadow and afraid of every man I meet. For sin is washed away. My spirit is no more guilty. 
It is pure. It is holy. The frown of God no longer resteth upon me, but my Father smiles. I see his eyes. They are glancing love. I hear his voice. It is full of sweetness. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. How can we be certain of this forgiveness? John tells us. He goes, on the account of his name. Names are a big deal, especially in this culture. Philippians 2, 9-10 through 10 in the New Living Translation. Therefore God elevated him, speaking of Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Church, there is no other name by which we can be saved. There is no other way to heaven. It is by His name alone. Speaking of children, the Greek word is, and, and for those who know Greek, don't laugh at me here, okay? Technion. It can mean an infant, a literal infant, or it's also used of Christian believers, Christian converts, little children. Here in verse 12, I believe John is talking not just to new believers, though, but also to the church as a whole. As we look in Scripture, we know that children are special, a true gift from God. As one reads through the Old and New Testament, you can clearly see the high value God places on children. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What's Jesus do? He calls a little child to him and and has him stand among them. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. And there's a warning here too. Jesus warns us, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's pretty, that's pretty harsh from Jesus, isn't it? High value on children. God loves his kids. In a chapter later in Matthew 19, Then children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Church, we must always hold on to that special childlike faith, a faith that can move mountains. A faith that does not doubt what God can do. And don't you love when your, children, when your children pray something and it's just so matter of fact, God can do this. And you're like, oh, I don't know if we can afford this. I don't and, and, and to hear your kids pray and you're like, they don't have a doubt in the world. They haven't let, they just know, believe, and they trust. Holding on to our childlike faith and childlike humility we, need to st- we still need to st- 
I lost my place here. Sorry about that. Okay. You cannot enter heaven without this childlike faith. However, church, it is not natural for little children to mean as little children. Likewise, a new believer, as a new believer, it would be abnormal to stop growing. Holding on to our childlike faith and childlike humility, we need to seek a deeper understanding of the word. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 confronts those who are refusing to grow in their faith. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Dear believers, are we still being bottle-fed? Or have we moved on to that solid food? Can you honestly say that you know more about Scripture now than you did a year ago? Six months ago? A month ago? Can you reflect back and see growth in your walk with Jesus? Are you moving forward? Don't be content with the status quo. Don't be content to stay where you're at. Don't be that 25-year-old who's still in 10th grade. Move. It's time to keep moving on. Verse 13. John continues, I'm writing to you fathers because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. The Greek word here is pater. Um, the word father, the Greek word, which can mean literally or figuratively, father of a corporal nature, natural fathers, and, and it, it implies both parents. It can also mean uh, a founder of a family or tribe, a forefather, or one advanced in years. That's the word John is using here. John is writing to these fathers in the faith, reminding them, you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. And who is this one from the beginning? We find the answer in Scripture in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John points to this earlier in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. I believe that John is pointing out the deeper maturity and understanding of scriptures that one would expect a father to have. Knowing the one from the beginning, having that deeper understanding of the beginning, the origins of where we've come from, understanding how sin entered the picture, understanding how we got to where we are, having a firm understanding of salvation, in short, a father should have wisdom that comes from maturity. There are tremendous responsibilities that come with being a father. Whether a father in the faith, 
that mature believer or as a father of children. And the, the ideas that John's expressing here, they're not mutually exclusive. Rather, they, they complement each other. We should see the same thing from a mature Christian who's maturing in their faith and, and from that father. Now, we live in a society that has devalued fatherhood. Hollywood has, for years, has portrayed fathers as that bumbling idiot. He's absent-minded. He's lazy. He's a horrible role model. This idea that fathers don't play an important role in society does not correspond with reality. The Heritage Foundation released a report in 1995 on the root causes of violent crime and the breakdown of marriage and the family. Their research pointed to the following. Over the past 30 years, the rise in violent crime parallels the rise in families abandoned by fathers. High crime neighborhoods are characterized by high concentrations of families abandoned by fathers. State-by-state analysis by heritage scholars indicated that a 10% increase in the percentage of children living in single-parent homes leads to a typically 17% increase in juvenile crime. The rate of violent teenage crime corresponds with the number of families abandoned by fathers. On the other hand, neighborhoods with a high degree of religious practice not high-crime neighborhoods. Even in high-crime inner-city neighborhoods, well over 90% of children from safe, stable homes do not become delinquents. By contrast, only 10% of children from unsafe, unstable homes in these neighborhoods avoid crime. Numbers aren't good, are they? When it comes to being the leader of the Christian home, I fear many fathers are not taking on their God-ordained role as spiritual leaders of their home. It's alarming to see the biblical illiteracy of our, children, our Christian youth today, which plays out in very unbiblical worldviews. Fathers, if you do not pass on your biblical worldview to your children, the world will be more than happy to pass on its own views. TikTok, Instagram, Hollywood... Our public school systems are very eager to pass on their post-Christian, post-modern, secular worldview to your kids. 2018 Barna and Impact 360 Institute research showed that only 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview. That number was 6% for millennials. Um, the, the numbers haven't been good for a couple generations. We're down to 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview. 85% of youth from, oh, here, this article here, this following article I'm quoting from is a 2010 article from equip.org. 85% um, of youth from Christian homes attending public schools do not hold a biblical worldview. Parents, if your kids are going to a public school, you've got your work ahead cut out for you. You're going to have to undo what they're learning in their school. About 8 million 20-somethings who are active churchgoers as teenagers will no longer be active in church by their 30th birthday. The National Study of Youth and Religion, the most extensive research on religious lives of U.S. teenagers to date, found 
the majority of teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about their faith and its meaning in their lives. They find it almost impossible to put basic beliefs into words. They also found that teens are functional deists. They believe that there's a God that exists. He created the world, set life in motion, but he only becomes involved with them personally to make their lives happier or to solve some of their problems. Many teens, including conservative Protestants, reject the essential doctrine of salvation by grace. Three out of five people, three out of five people can earn a place, believe that they can earn a place in heaven if they are generally good or do enough good things for others. And deciding right from wrong in difficult situations, only 31% of Southern Baptist teens said they turned to God or the scriptures. An almost identical percent said they decide based on whether it made them feel happy or helped them get ahead in life. And speaking in broader terms, if you want to see Gen Z, if, if you want to see that group upset, tell them the biblical worldview on human sexuality. Tell them that God created us male and female. There's not a third gender. It's male and female. God created them for a specific purpose. And that God decided who you were going to be before the foundations of the world. You don't get to decide that. This generation has been so brainwashed to think that I can just decide, I can identify however I want. No, God does that. We don't have the power to do that. And when we allow ourselves to do that, it leads to pain. It leads to horrible consequences. It leads to suffering. Us older generation, doesn't it kind of make you want to put your hands on your hip and discuss and, ah, these kids nowadays, where are they getting this? Let's be honest. We, we can be a little self-righteous and think about how our generation is faring better, but then we have to ask ourselves, how did it get this way? Why are these younger generations thinking and acting the way they do? The answer, parents, is staring at us right in the mirror. They don't have a biblical worldview either because we don't have a biblical worldview, or if we do, we haven't taught them our biblical worldview, or could it be that our kids see our actions and lifestyle does not match what we say our biblical worldview is? Parents, we have to live it. We have to walk the walk and talk the talk. Charles Spurgeon spoke a warning to parents. Let no Christian parent fall into the delusion that Sunday school is intended to ease them of their personal duties. The first and most natural condition of things is for Christian parents to train up their own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Guys, it's, the, it's not the church's job. It's, it's our job. It's our job, parents. Fathers, we play a very important role in this. Um, a rather obscure but large and important study conducted by the Swiss government in 1994 and published in the year 2000 revealed that some astonishing facts in, with regard to the generational transmission of faith and religious values. The full title of the study is The Demographic Characteristics of the Linguistic and Religious Groups in Switzerland. The first finding of the study 
said that if both father and mother attend church regularly, 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers. Okay? 41% will end up attending irregularly, but they're still kind of showing up at church. Only a quarter of their children will end up not practicing at all. Okay? So mom and dad setting a good example. We see mostly kids are going to be going to church, kind of following in their footsteps. If the father is irregular attender and mother attends regularly, only 3% of the children will subsequently become regulars themselves. 3%. They're watching dad going, well, if he doesn't need to go to church, why, why, why am I going? 38% will become lost. Point number three was if the father is a non-practicing churchgoer, doesn't go to church at all, mom goes irregularly, only 2% of the children will become regular worshipers in church. 37% will attend irregularly. They'll show up to church on occasion. Over 60% of the children will be lost completely to the church. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, fathers. What happens if the father is a regular church attender, but the mother is irregular or even non-practicing churchgoer? Amazingly, the percentage of children becoming regular goes up from 33% to 38% with the irregular mother. And it goes up to 44% with the non-practicing mother. This suggests that loyalty to the father's commitment grows in response to the mother's laxity or indifference to religion. Moms, I'm not telling you, like, please keep going to church. That's not the point of this. But, but kids, they're watching their dads. In short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers, both regular and irregular. One of the reasons suggested for this distinction is that children tend to take their cues about domestic life from mom while their conceptions of the world outside come from dad. If dad takes faith in God seriously, then the message to their children is that God should be taken seriously. Dads, that rests on us. In his book, Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations, University of Southern California research professor Vern Bengston corroborates the outsized importance of dads when it comes to religious observance. He zeroes in on the closeness between fathers and their children and the spiritual power it exerts on their lives. Bengston reports that 50, 56% of kids who have close relationship with their dads share his level of religious commitment, while 36% of kids with a weaker relationship to their father can say the same thing. That's a 20% difference. 20 points there. There's a Christian apologist I really enjoy listening to. Um, his ministry is cross-examined. His name is Frank Turek. And, and this guy goes on the college campuses and basically presents the gospel to a very hostile crowd. One of the points he makes 
is this. I'm going to quote him here. The reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. Parents, have we talked our kids into it? Have we given them a reason to believe? There is so much good material out there, parents. We really don't have an excuse. How do we as fathers stop this trend? What does a good father look like? I have just three simple points here. Number one, first, dads, pick up your cross and follow him. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Fathers, we need to walk the walk. We need to talk the talk. We've got to pick up our cross daily. We need to die to ourselves. We need to die to our desires and follow Jesus. We have to be that example. Secondly, I want to point to a healthy marriage. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Dads, what does your marriage look like? Do your kids see that you love your wife like Christ loves the church? Do they see a healthy marriage? I can tell you, kids thrive in a home where mom and dad love each other, where they're committed to one another. If you want your kids to thrive, work on a healthy marriage. Thirdly, invest in your kids. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Fathers, it's up to us to train up our kids with a biblical worldview. This is our job. Now the church, Transform Ministries, the church, we're here to reinforce what you should be teaching at home. But honestly, how much time are we spending in this building during the week? You know, our kids show up for youth group, right? We show up on Sunday mornings. But you have your kids all week long. It is up to us to reinforce this day in and day out. We have no other higher calling than that. And church, I'm going to confess to you right now, I am not the perfect dad. Trevor's back there saying amen. Um, uh, and, and I honestly, I feel convicted by the weight of this message and the mistakes I've made along the way. Honestly, I wish I could go back and do a lot of things different. But I can only control how I respond to the future. Right? Maybe, maybe we haven't been the best dad up to this point, but today's a new day. We can make a choice to change. I'm going to tell a quick story here. Um, sorry, boys. Um, you know, thinking of how imperfect of a dad I am, and my family laughs at me because I, I, I don't get hungry. I get hangry. And, and when I do, I make some bad choices. And I remember my wife and I were at a seminar. It was just a day-long seminar, and I went there hungry, by lunchtime, I'm starving, and they gave us like this 45-minute window for lunch. And I called the boys to check on them, and like, I, I pay a lot of money 
to give them cell phones to answer it when I call. <laughs> and, and do you think they answered? And, and being the paranoid police dad, you know, we, we actually had sat down at a restaurant. I told my wife, like, I got to go home and check on him. And I, and I was starting to get irritated, like, answer the phone. Um, so I drive home. I'm hungry. We just left the restaurant that I wanted to eat at. And they were just fine playing Xbox. So they lost Xbox. Dad was like, how do you not answer your phone? And my wife and I went, and we grabbed a quick lunch, and, and then suddenly the blood sugar started to like, get to where it should be. And I'm like, I was a jerk, wasn't I? I'm always like, yeah. So, you know, and I, I had to go apologize to my boys. I'm like, sorry, you can have your Xbox back. Um, <laughs> and, although I'm going to kind of point the blame a little at them because you'd think at this point they'd have like some snicker bars when dad gets that look in his eyes, you know. <laughs> Quick, dad's eyes are glazing over. Throw a snickers at him. <laughs> uh. Dads, get used to apologizing to your kids. If you don't get used to it, you need to. You need to tell your kids when you screw up. You need to tell your wife when you screw up. Okay? Don't, you don't get to pull the, I'm the dad, and I'm always, no. We make mistakes. Our kids need to see us walk in humility. And, and it is humbling, even when you apologize to that four-year-old when you blow it, you know? Um, dads, we need to do that. We've got to set that example. But what about broken homes? Single moms and dads, please don't take this as an attack on you. It, it's not. Parent, parenting is tough with two parents in the home that love each other. I can only imagine the difficulties of being a single parent. God's grace will see you through. Single parents, this church body is here to help. You're, you're, don't walk this alone. We're here to help. You're this is why here at Transform, we encourage community. We need the older generations here in this church, these older generations of men and women alike to disciple our younger generations. And that might mean some of us older guys here, that might mean latching on to a teenager from a single-parent home. That's our job. We need to be doing this. Single parents, we are here to help. John, continuing on in this passage, addresses young men and circles back again to everything he said in verse 14. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you. and You have conquered the evil one. The last group John addresses in this passage is the young men. Think about the strength of young men. Proverbs 20, 29. The glory of young men is their inner strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Mike, DJ, this is splendor. I don't want any more grief over the gray hair. It's splendor. <laughs> but the glory of young men is their strength. I'll tell you, church, I'm greatly encouraged by what I see from the young men and women here serving at Transform. The strength of the young men and women of YWAM who are boldly going to Thailand to serve for five years. It's a long time. You're in your 20s. That's commitment. 
I'm excited that God always has that remnant of believers. I can't help but to think, think of Ephesians 4, uh, verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Young men and women who are growing in their Christian walk, no longer little children, but maturing in their faith, understanding of Scripture, yet holding on to that knowledge of their sins that have been forgiven. These young men and women continuing in their walk that have overcome the evil one, the strength of youth. Young people, I encourage you, continue to follow Jesus. Don't stop growing. Young men and women, I also encourage you, embrace the calling of being a mom and dad. It really is the best job out there. I love being a dad. Embrace the calling of not only being a father and mother in the home, but being leaders in the body of Christ. I'm going to have the worship team come up now at this time. Let's pray. Lord, the numbers can be disheartening. And yet, Lord, you always have that faithful remnant that is so encouraging. Young men and women who are stepping up and answering the call. Lord, I, I want to pray for also the moms and dads out here today. May they be encouraged. May they be encouraged that they have such an influence on the lives of their kids, Lord, that even if they're heading in a bad trajectory, that, that that Christian witness, that living out our lives, following you, picking up our cross daily, we can have an impact on the lives of our kids. I pray, Lord, that you would protect the families of this church, protect the marriages of this church. May we take our calling seriously. Our kids need us. Pray a blessing upon this church body today. Would you bless them as they um, go out and fellowship and go home and start their week, Lord. I pray, Lord, that they would seek you daily and pick up their cross daily and follow you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.